0: Welcome to Vancouver Opera Offstage. I'm your host, Les Dalla, Chorus Director and Associate Conductor at Vancouver Opera. Join me for this podcast as we connect with opera experts, artists, staff, and others to explore the world of opera on and off the stage. We are honoured to share our stories on the unceded homelands of the Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil nations. Good afternoon and welcome to the podcast... I am truly delighted and honored to have as my guest today internationally recognized interdisciplinary artist Susie LeBlanc, who has recently been appointed as the Artistic and Executive Director of Early Music Vancouver, who is the recipient of an Order of Canada Award, uh, a Grammy Award and four honorary doctorates. I've never met uh, Susie in person, so I'm a little extra nervous today. But uh, Susie, I am so delighted uh, that you're on the show. Thank you so much.
1: Uh, Listen, I'm so pleased to be here. And thank you so much for inviting me. And it's a great pleasure to meet you online.
0: Your appointment, I guess, began in January. And can you tell us how things are going? And may I offer my congratulations, too, on this incredible uh, digital season that uh, EMV has put together?
1: Oh, thank you so much. Yes, yeah, so I started uh, just at the beginning of January. And of course, it's, it's a huge learning curve in, in some of things. But I'm blessed, actually, by two things. I'm blessed because I have an amazing staff at EMV that, that know more how it works than I do and that have been extremely helpful to me. And I also am blessed because Matthew White had planned the digital concert season before he left until the end of this season, which is the last concert is today, June 2nd. So this has been wonderful, and it's given me the time to plan what's coming, which is the, the summer festival and the next season. And uh, in a way, the fact that we weren't in production was actually very fortunate for having the time to learn everything I needed to learn. So it's been great.
0: Right. And I will ask you a little bit about what you have upcoming down the road, but I would love to start by, again, you are known primarily as a performer of early music but you're active as a performer of art song, contemporary music, Acadian music. You majored in harpsichord studies when you were a student and you were also active as a conductor. How do you manage all of these diverse disciplines? And can you give us a glimpse into how and when you discovered your love of music and retraced your artistic journey for us?
1: Thank you, sure. The first question is, how do I manage to do all these things? Obviously, by doing them one at a time. (laughs) 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 And scheduling is a little tricky and getting a lot of help when I need it, you know, from colleagues and things. But it looks like I've done a lot of things, but definitely there were periods in my life when I was doing more one thing than another. So I did not do them all at once. Well, it all started with Monteverdi, I want to say, (laughs) in in a way love at first hearing, if we if we can say that. My mother was a singer, I guess I should start even there. Even earlier, she was an opera singer. And she sang a little bit, you know, at the Quebec Opera when she was young. And she was just about to go to sing a role at the Met when she became pregnant with my older sister and had to say no to that contract. And then that that opportunity never came back. But she did sing a lot in Canada. Then she stopped and, and went to teaching. But you know, I was raised by a mother who listened to the opera on the radio on Saturdays. And to be honest with you, I didn't understand it when I was young. I just thought it was a foreign language, and people seemed to be screaming at each other. And I didn't know the stories, and I, <laughs> I just didn't take to it. But years later, I heard a recording of Monteverdi. We were on holiday somewhere, and there was a recording of Monteverdi there. It was the Lamento della Ninfa and uh, some other pieces by him, and I you know, I couldn't stop listening to it. I think I was 14 or 15, and uh, it really affected me deeply, and I started trying to compose and imitate the style, and I was just taken by it. And, and then uh, much later, I was living in Montreal doing my cégep as a harpsichord player, and I went to a concert of the Studio de Musique Ancienne de Montréal. It is a choir, a vocal group. And they were doing Monteverdi, La Selva Morale e Spirituale, so these these beautiful sacred pieces by Monteverdi. And it was the same visceral reaction. And I was, I have to do this, you know, and I was a little bit upset because I'd grown up in New Brunswick where none none of this music was actually available. And so here I was in Montreal and I, I, you know, made sure I found this group and then enrolled at Ep as a harpsichord player with one of the directors of SMAM. And so he invited me to sing at his wedding. And from one thing to the other, I ended up singing in this choir that I admired so much from afar. So that really led me to the early music scene of Montreal. And, you know, I was already a harpsichord player, but I had always sung on the side, probably because of my mother. And singing was part of me. And I ended up realizing that I was always stepping in for singers who were ill Because I learned fast, and I ended up singing far more than playing the harpsichord during my degree at McGill. I was always singing, so it was almost a natural thing to graduate with a harpsichord degree, but actually go on to be a singer. It might sound strange to some people, but it just kind of happened. And my first professional engagement was for Early Music Vancouver in 1984, who were then called the Vancouver Society for Early Music. So amazing that I find myself here now, years later at the place that gave me my first professional engagement.
0: Wow, that is incredible. Did you study flute when you were quite young as well?
1: Yes, the modern flute. I liked it, but I realized that what I liked playing on the flute was Bach and early music, and I didn't like the vibrato, so I wasn't a very good modern flute player.
0: Amazing, but obviously you really honed into the early music style. That's what really hit you right from the start. Yes. May I ask your mother? Her operatic repertoire was it early music or was it more of the classical romantic repertoire?
1: Nothing to do with early music whatsoever. She sang Juliet and Mimi, and you know she was definitely a nineteenth-century uh, opera role uh, singer and. She used to mock me when I started doing early music. She used to say, "Oh, I can sing straight tones too," and she'd kind of do this very strange noise that she would call a, a non-vibrato sound. And she used to mock me all the time. But you know, it was in jest. I mean, we got along very well. <laughs> I have to say that she turned around and eventually really loved it. Oh, I bet. See me perform and was very supportive, but but she found it very odd at the beginning.
0: And you have. A discography of over 75 recordings on many labels, uh, as mentioned, a, a Grammy award for, I believe, recording of Luli mm-hmm. Of course, right now in COVID times, most organizations are relying on either streaming or digital content that is pre-recorded. How would you compare live performances to the medium of recording and, you know, with what's going on right now?
1: You know, it's funny, I think that when you're an artist, when I was younger, anyway, I wanted to think that doing a recording and doing a concert were the same thing, because I wanted to prepare in the same way. And they're utterly different. So that led to me being very uncomfortable in my first recordings, because I really, really was a different person when there was an audience there. I think the main thing is that my brain, my analytical brain, was not wanting to work when there was an audience. I just wanted to communicate. And so when there's a recording, that brain can really get in the way of things. You know, you've, you want it in your practice room, but you don't want it in a performance or a recording. So that was really hard for me. And the way I sorted that out for myself, and I think it's the same whether it's recording or video recording, is that for one, I sing to the crew. <laughs> They're my audience, you know, the guys holding the, the mics or the camera. And one thing I noticed during this strange time we've had with all these digital recordings in the past year, I've done a lot of them too since March 2020, I found myself singing to one or two people in particular, and often they were deceased people. Like I would suddenly find myself singing to my father or singing to an aunt who was a singer. And that gave me almost more support than thinking there was nobody in the audience. It really helped me. I I would sing it, you know, once through and I wasn't happy. And then I'd remember to sing to my aunt or to my dad. And suddenly it was like, oh, yeah, I'm making music again. So I think it really helped to focus on who I was directing the music to in the absence of an audience that so fills the space with expectation. You know, I get goosebumps just talking about it, that dialogue that happens between an audience and a performer that makes you do things you never thought you would do because it's in the moment.
0: Of course, the risk taking mm. and the sense of communication, your response about singing to a deceased person I've not heard that from anybody yet. That's very powerful. Mm. This is a kind of impossible question to answer, I imagine, but could you share some career highlights, both in terms of being on stage and recordings?
1: Sure, I think the problem with that question is just that there's so many beautiful moments. you know I've done it for thirty five years, so it's hard to choose. But if I have to choose. I'll do it chronologically maybe because I think the first time that I sang the Monteverdi Vespers was almost an out of body experience it was just absolutely amazing it was really I obviously have something for that composer but the Vespers are are just a, an amazing piece to be within to be part of and I remember doing them actually here in Vancouver the same year that we also performed his Popea L'incoronazione di Popea And uh, we were all exhausted from the rehearsals and the performances of Popea. And at the end of the festival, you know, they said, oh, you're singing the Vespers now. And it was one of the most beautiful things because I think we couldn't get in the way of anything being so tired. But the magic really happened because we were all so tight knit and close because of the work we'd done on the opera. You know how you get really close to your colleagues that way in a way that you might not create when you're just working on a concert version of the Vespers. So that was that was amazing. There was also um, all my work with the uh, Elizabeth Bishop, the poet. She passed away, of course, in 1911. So I never met her, but uh, it was her centenary in 2011. And I found out about her a little bit by fluke. I was in Nova Scotia and read about her. And it was a time in my life when I was looking for a mentor. I was needing to shift and I didn't know how. And strangely enough, there you go again, a deceased person became my mentor. (laughs) So I read a lot of her poetry and, and she really infiltrated my life in such a way that I moved to Nova Scotia from Montreal to somehow work with colleagues there on her centenary. And what I did was to commission Canadian composers to write music on her poetry. Only American composers had done so thus far. So it was nice to give her her Canadian uh, identity. She herself said she was three quarters Canadian because her grandparents were from Nova Scotia and PEI. So it was a lovely project. It was, you know, a good year and a half in the making. And we premiered these pieces with Symphony Nova Scotia. And then I recorded them for Center Disc. And the CD is beautifully called the title of one of her poems called I Am In Need of Music which incidentally I've just recorded digitally with the Vancouver Symphony last month. And I'm not sure when that will be aired, but probably sometime in the month of June. So these pieces, the I Am In Need of Music, is uh, four songs that Christos Hatzis uh, composed. Uh, Beautiful songs, but there were lots of other composers on the CD. There's um, Alistair MacLean and Emily Doolittle and John Plant as well. So it was a a deeply moving experience to work for so long on these beautiful poems and to bring them to life for people who might not read poetry but somehow get acquainted with it through the music. That was a a major project for me. And the last one would be a project called Mouvance, which means migration or displacement. I'm Acadian, so my ancestors were displaced, were moved in the 18th century several, several times, and it really ruptured the families, of course. It took hundreds of years for people to find their land again and their language and their culture. We don't have a country anymore, but we have a culture. So that project was really interesting because even though it originated from the poetry of Akkadians, uh, I think there were 10 different poets, and the music is written by Jérôme Blais, who's not Akkadian but lives in the Maritimes. And so even though it originated with this Acadian poetry and poetical style, it's really universal because it'll speak to any population that is living through a forced migration or a chosen migration. So that's a project that I am recording in September. And we're also going to do lots of digital short films with the poets. So it's an ongoing project that we performed. I think it was 2019 when it was premiered. And it's one of the only things that I've kept as a performer, now that I'm the artistic and executive director of VMV, I have so little time to sing, but that one I am going to keep doing.
0: Oh, that's wonderful. I was listening to a number of your recordings, including the Mozart songs with Yannick Nézé-Séguin on the piano. They came out in 2006, and that was the year I met him. Yannick conducted for Vancouver Opera only once, Gunos Faust and it was a really happy time. What a great guy, what a great artist. And he talked about you then, actually, and he said that you were very good friends and quite close, and that recording was just so beautiful.
1: Oh, yes. And thanks for mentioning it, because it's definitely a highlight. <laughs> I'd forgotten. <laughs>
0: Look, I mean, with over 70 recordings, that's why I hesitate, because I know it would be uh, impossible to choose. The other one, too, that I loved, the repertoire was The Messiaen, The Chant de Terre et du Ciel, and in particular, The Le Mort du Nombre. Mm-hmm. What a beautiful recording. You with Lawrence Williford as their tenor, Robert Kortigard. Just a magical, magical recording. So again, I was a bit stunned because when your name appears in my mind, it's as someone with so much extensive early music repertoire. But of course, that never limits anybody to what they can do. It's just so easy, as many people have said, to get pigeonholed and that kind of thing. The projects you're talking about now are contemporary things as well. It's really amazing to me just how well-rounded you are as an artist, that you take your inspiration from so many, many things.
1: I think I'm just naturally curious. And I don't like saying no to things.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're all the luckier for that. Thank you. I watched some of the video of the Elizabeth Bishop Project, and it's so beautiful. So I encourage our listeners to really have a look. You have a very generous website with a lot of great content that one can watch for free and listen to for free. So thank you for that. Let's talk a little bit about EMV and future plans. I noticed that just a couple of days ago, there was the press release that EMB has announced the appointment of its first-ever summer artist-in-residence, Cree 2 Two-Spirit Baritone Jonathan Adams. Can you tell us a bit about Jonathan and this appointment?
1: Oh, God, with pleasure.
0: Jonathan is a wonderful
1: singer. He's a really beautiful baritone voice. And his specialty is early music, and his specialty is, I would say, even Bach. And He's really a beautiful Bach singer, although he's a great personal singer, too, and Britain. <laughs> I met him through the pandemic. We connected on Zoom for some singing coaching and singing conversations. And so we became friends and I, I did a bit of coaching with him. I don't really think he needed it, but there you go, it was it was a way to collaborate. He moved to Montreal recently and and of course we were going to do things there, but then I moved to Vancouver. So I'm just very excited. He came here not too long ago and I decided to ask Alex Weiman, the music director of Pacific Park Orchestra, to audition Jonathan and they got along. So then I thought this is something I wanted to bring. It was the the idea of the artist in residence. It can be a soloist or it can be a group. But the idea is to also have somebody travel here and stay for a longer period and be able to do many more things, outreach and, and teaching and lectures and So Jonathan's going to come. He does three concerts with EMV, and he's doing a panel discussion on being Indigenous in the early music world with other Indigenous leaders, and it's going to be really fascinating. There's an outdoor concert in the Botanical Gardens where he's going to perform some French airs with a mixture of airs from Cree and Métis origin. And some of the French airs that he's doing ended up in some of the Cree Métis songbooks. So this is really interesting, the mixture. So, yeah, I would just say he's really an up-and-coming, wonderful artist that also, because of its indigeneity, has so much to offer in terms of how he approaches this Western white man music, if you like. You know, he was born in it. He was raised Lutheran, so Bach speaks to him very, very deeply. And so it's not something he wants to stop doing by any means. And it's just how he manages to learn about his own ancestral tradition while still being an early music singer. Uh, Really interesting person.
0: And I saw as well that you have an ongoing project, Festival La Cite des Dames, the City of Ladies Festival, which is an upcoming collaboration, I believe, between Early Music Vancouver and Le Nouvel Opera, which is, again, another company that you founded and I imagine you're still artistic director of that as well.
1: I still am for the moment. I had planned these concerts called the City of Ladies in Montreal. And now they've become digital concerts that we're recording in Montreal. And one of them is recorded in Belgium because they can't travel. And so this was the perfect thing to put on the digital concert hall of Early Music Vancouver because we didn't really have much time to record content. But this was all planned. So it's something that I want to bring to Early Music Vancouver in the future as a in-person concerts. They were already planning the City of Ladies 2022 and 2023. And it, it, the idea of City of Ladies, it, you know, the title comes from a book that Christine de Pizan wrote, and she was a feminist writer in the 15th century. Her book was published in 1405, the book of the City of Ladies. And she builds a city, and each stone of that city is built from the life of a woman who has changed or affected or influenced society in a, in a wonderful way, whether it's with music or art, or whether it's socially, any kind of education, engagement, politically. So uh, we are honoring some composers, but we're also honoring the hospitaller nuns in Montreal that co-founded the city and how their resilience and their healing helped society over centuries. They went through quite a few pandemics themselves, so they can teach us something about that. So that's the festival, basically, in a nutshell. It'll be online during the Bach Festival days, which are July 26 to August 6, 2021.
0: Coming up very, very soon. And I imagine, as you mentioned earlier, too, you must have a lot of planning meetings constantly about upcoming seasons. Is there anything that you can share with us at this point? Was last year the 50th anniversary? It was
1: 2019 and yes, 1920.
0: I remember the Bach Choir had been invited to be part of a large extravaganza at the Chan Center featuring, uh, you know, the chamber choir, the cantata singers. And we were thrilled to, you know, play a small part in that. And then, of course, that was scheduled for, I believe, the first week of April or sometime in April. And of course, as of March 12th or whatever, the world as we know it changed. So...
1: Yes. Yeah. There were many, many fantastic projects and a lot of concerts planned for that year. I can say that I I am trying to rebook some of the things that were canceled in order to be honorable for the artists that worked hard and thought they were coming. In some cases we can do that. But of course there's also a bit of the risk, you know, in the fall not doing as many concerts and not having as many international artists. But we have something exciting coming up. We purchased a new piano. It's a graph copy of an 1819 forte piano by Paul McNulty in Czechoslovakia. And that is, it's finished. It's done. It just needs to be shipped when we can finally ship things from Czechoslovakia. It's a bit hard to organize right now. And so there'll be an inauguration of the piano next season. And I will not tell you when in case it changes too many times, but it's happening. That's going to be very exciting. And um, another wonderful group that I know Matthew White also wanted to bring here and started working on, and I was able to complete that, is Ensemble Correspondance. It's a French ensemble doing a lot of French music, although they do Italian and English as well. An amazing, amazing group. Everything they do is magical, I think. So they're going to um, come here in May of 2022 with a wonderful program all about music from Versailles in the Chan Center. So I'm very excited about that. And there's, there's tons of beautiful concerts and Pacific Baroque Orchestra doing something extraordinary in March. Alexander Weimann put together a program of all all music by 18th century women, most of whom, you know, I might have read their name in a history book very briefly, but I didn't know their music at all. And it's for strings and winds and keyboard concertos. And so, it's, I think it's going to be very exciting in March to have a, a women-only concert for the PBO. Lots of great projects, but I'm not going to say too much until the publicity comes out, because of course, things are still a little bit shifting.
0: Yeah, very much in flux. It's true. May I ask when you're thinking that you might be performing for a live audience?
1: I'm counting on having live performances from the fall. Uh, you know, not that many concerts, but at least one every month between the October and December. And, um, you know, we are doing concerts this summer in the Chan, and we are hoping to be able to welcome a certain amount of people their recordings you know that we're doing for the digital concert hall but we we like to have some audience there because it's more fun for the players to have an audience and it's wonderful for the audience to finally to get to hear live music so but to really sell tickets and perform I'm, I'm hoping that by january 2022 we we have a little bit more of that
0: ability that's very exciting as you mentioned the whole thing of, of having you know even a handful of people it does make a huge difference Uh, My last guest was Mike Southworth of Collide Entertainment, who I know was responsible for filming, I think, your entire digital season. And I said to him, you know, as a performer, it's really tough doing a concert where you're used to having so many people and then there's just nobody there and you kind of get a little weirded out. And he said, oh, well, I felt like I was a king because I was the only person there. And, And, you know, all of these wonderful concerts and these music events that I was allowed to observe and to preserve. And I hadn't thought about it. But of course, yeah, the time, he was the only person in the room, which is an amazing thing. I'm
1: sure it's exactly what royalty felt like yeah. <laughs> in some centuries. That's, he deserves to be king. I think that's beautiful.
0: I agree with you 100%. I, <laughs> I made the joke, too, that it was a little bit like King Ludwig II of Bavaria, who was Wagner's benefactor and who did, in fact, have private audiences of some of Wagner's works. And uh,
1: Maybe that's what the world is coming back to, you know? <laughs>
0: well I hope not for the huge legions of fans who are missing it very very much do you have any message to share for anybody you know like hope it's just around the corner hopefully we're back there's been incredible artistic activity during this time there's no question but it is the medium is different and it affords us all some possibilities that you know you couldn't do in, in live performances but
1: you know that's my takeaway actually it's more than the lack, uh, you know, what we're missing is the audiences, of course, and it's terribly sad, but the resilience and the creativity that came from this is astounding, just astounding. And also the different ways that people are working together. You know, I know people who are learning to improvise together on platforms like this one and finding ways to make it happen so that you end up having tons of collaborations from people in all corners of the planet. And I'm not sure that that would have happened. So I think there's so much good that could come from this and that we actually have a chance of getting acquainted with music that's being made in countries where we wouldn't necessarily be able to go to a live concert, but we have it online. And so even though I also tire of too much onlineness, I think that the potential of the sharing of cultures is immense. And that's really exciting to me
0: agreed one of the other things that came up with Mike i posed the question do you think that the digital format will be around to stay in other words so when the time comes that we are able to go fully back to live concerts do you see this as also being a component of future seasons
1: absolutely absolutely now that it's here it's not going anywhere yeah and i think it's a valuable tool i think it's wonderful i mean i want people in asia and africa to see my concerts and i want to see theirs and have conversations so no i I think that it might shift a little bit, but it's here to stay.
0: Yeah, Agreed. You must have statistics, actually, on who watches your programs. I imagine there are people from all over the world.
1: Yes. I mean, mostly they're from BC and Canada, but we do have a few people, you know, from other countries, Spain and England. And, you know, we're keeping track. I think the point is to try to find a way to get more content on their platforms because they don't always know about ours, right? So
0: Of course. That's the big challenge, isn't it? When I heard that you were appointed to this position, I was so excited because again, your reputation is phenomenal. I have to admit, I didn't expect necessarily that you would be moving here, but you have been here since January, haven't you? I moved the
1: day before Christmas.
0: Oh my goodness.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I needed a week off before starting my position. So I thought if I moved a week before, I might get that week off. Yeah, you know, I just found that it was possible to do it for Montreal and possible to do it online, but that it would be much more enjoyable if I did it and I was here able to meet people in person. I would have had to travel a lot, which didn't appeal all that much. And I'm glad I came. It's a very different culture than Montreal and I need to feel it and be in it in order to learn about it. And it's a beautiful place, especially in the springtime. So I would have missed out on all the incredible flowers that have been blooming. So I'm yeah no I'm I'm quite happy and I'm going back to Montreal in June for 3 weeks to do some concerts and so I'll be, I'll get to reunite with that part of my life but uh it made sense to me to be living here to start a position like this if I really was going to invest myself fully
0: It's awesome and honestly lucky us it's great and over at the university as well uh, Christina Subo has joined us this year too so suddenly it's like a windfall of great vocal artists this year so Yeah, again, we're very lucky. And I hope that in the future, too, there may be room for collaborations with Vancouver Opera.
1: Absolutely. I would love to. We'll have to talk.
0: Once again, thank you so much, Susie Le for taking the time to speak with me. And congratulations on your appointment. And uh, we're so looking forward to your Summer Festival and to your upcoming seasons of programming and all the wonderful concerts that are in store.
1: Now, thank you very much for welcoming me on this podcast. And I look forward to Vancouver Opera Productions online as well. And hearing and sharing great art together so thank you so much
0: all the very best we'd love to hear from you if you have any feedback or suggestions for upcoming guests you can reach us via email at online at vancouveropera.ca and don't forget to check out this episode's special features on our website at vancouveropera.ca forward slash offstage this has been vancouver opera offstage i'm your host les dallas As always, you can keep up to date with Vancouver Opera at vancouveropera.ca, where you can sign up for our e-newsletter or follow us on social media. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.